Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Williams. Join me as we explore the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and discuss a wide range of military history topics from the American Civil War to the Korean War. 20,000 American troops went into captivity after the fall of the Philippines in 1942. Recent scholarship indicates that half of those POWs did not survive captivity. Surviving the POW experience in the Philippines, including the hell ships and labor camps in Korea and Japan, was no easy feat. For those who did survive to liberation, how did the U.S. Army medical system treat them? How were they reintegrated back into society? To tell us more about the repatriation of former POWs, we are joined by Scott Woodard, historian with the U.S. Army Medical Department Center of History and Heritage. Welcome, sir, and thank you for joining us today. Well, I really appreciate the being here, and I am very thankful that uh, we can tell these great stories of the individuals that uh, have served our country. And uh, as an individual, I also I'd like your listeners to know that uh, as Scott Woodard, I'm speaking here on behalf of just myself. I don't necessarily represent the Department of Defense or the U.S. Army Medical Department. So I'm looking forward to this, and this is a great opportunity. Thanks. During World War I and World War II, the U.S. Army gains a lot of experience in rehabilitating and reintegrating soldiers back into society. Does the POW experience make this process more challenging? I, I believe so. And I think the biggest thing we see from POW experience is the whole reintegration process. And characteristically, the POWs suffer from malnutrition or other diseases that come from that and parasites, communicable diseases that they've gotten in captivity. So that makes it difficult for the for them to reintegrate into society. And what, initially, what we see, particularly in World War II, is that there are given opportunities to get tested, do physical examinations in the military system, and uh, then there's the whole process of the mental reintegration. And we'll talk more about that probably, but uh, that's some of our continual challenges we see is basically treating the whole person. How did liberated POWs from the Pacific Theater compare to their counterparts in Europe? And you mentioned kind of the physical, mental side. So how did that experience compare in World War II? It's actually a comparison of true contrasts. Of course, we had POWs coming from Europe because that portion of the war ended first. And so we learned a lot from our, the repatriation of the soldiers who were prisoners in Europe. And for the most part, you know, there's always exceptions when you look at generalities. But for the most part, the uh, Nazi Germany treated British uh, Commonwealth and American soldiers as prisoners fairly decently. Um, and then that's contrasted with looking at prisoners under the Japanese Empire, where they were mistreated, malnourished, and in the concept of the culture of, of the folks that were in charge of Japan at the time, a prisoner was often viewed as less of a human because they had become prisoners. And so that idea and thought continued on in those treatment of the prisoners by mistreatment and frankly, food was scarce everywhere. And so 
the ramifications of scarcity of food is the prisoners usually got the last of what was available. I think I read somewhere at one point you had almost a a 95% plus chance of surviving as an American POW in a POW camp in Europe, as opposed to maybe a 50% chance of survival somewhere in the Pacific in a POW camp. So obviously some, some major contrasts there. Now, you've researched the U.S. Army's rehabilitation programs for POWs in both Europe and in the Pacific. Were there differences in how those programs were set up to deal with those different experiences? Yes, there were some differences. And because the prisoners in Europe were actually repatriated first, there was some learning curve. And they actually, from what they learned there, the uh, one of the chief medical consultants for the Army Surgeon General is a guy named Brigadier General Hugh Morgan. And he comes up with a standardized process for working the physical examinations and the whole reintegration process with uh, soldiers. And so it became known as the Morgan Board. And what they did is they did a concentrated effort on how to actually collect the information with the intent uh, caring for the soldiers in the future, learning about the disease prevention, and any physical check, basically marking what, the, what they were observing at the point of repatriation, and then being able to monitor the changes that are in those soldiers. So basically, it's a great medical history that they take, and they begin implementing that better when they, when they get to the Pacific Theater, because it was much later, and they learn much more. And of course, as we've discussed earlier, they do see a, a stark contrast in the physical health of those folks coming out of the Pacific Theater. And it might be not obvious, but in this initial review that they give to the uh former prisoners of war, you basically go into two categories. It's either you're a medical or you're a non-medical soldier returning back to the United States. And with the even with non-medical soldiers, they were still cared for in the United States through military hospitals. But the difference, if you're labeled as a medical patient, then you're cared for totally en route, usually in World War II hospital ships, but there were exceptions where folks uh, flew. And um, the primary example of prisoners flying back would be several of the nurses that were held prisoner by the Japanese in the Philippines. Can you walk us through what a recently liberated POW in the Pacific theater would have experienced? What are the stages of treatment, rehabilitation, and then reintegration? I think the best case study is the nurses. We had 66 Army nurses in the Philippines with an additional dietitian that was in the Army and a physical therapist that was in the army. So those prisoners have been documented fairly well. And part of that was because they were kind of showcased as good news stories. And I would like to talk about that later on in in the interview. But in fact, what they would initially happen is coming out of the Pacific is the Morgan Board's report was mandating all these specific, very intense physical examinations. And they would go through that process and figure out, you know, what is wrong with the patient? What are their symptoms? And basically looked at life, limb, and eyesight initially with providers flown out of, and and for the nurses uh, coming out of the Philippines in 45, the case was they would eventually get to Hawaii. And in Hawaii, they would receive treatment 
looking at about 10 days to a week, and then follow-on treatment in the Letterman General Hospital in San Francisco, California. And they would go through a battery of continuation, reintegration, depending on the severity of the uh, soldier's problems. But then they were given 30 days of uh, leave after that. And then usually a follow-on care would come about close to their home station where where they originally were from, and follow-on care would be provided at those uh, locations. But I think some of the things that uh, were challenging for the World War II generation is that uh, there was just a desire to get home quickly, just to get done with it. And so you often see in documentation that uh, in World War II, your prisoners of war would not complain as much and would not reveal all of their problems because that would in turn make them stay in a hospital and they couldn't get home. So you saw a lot of that in World War II, and that begins to change when we get into the Korean War. You mentioned that a lot of the former POWs are desperate to get back home. And um, I think in some of your research, you write about how they want to get back home and eat American food, and that sometimes even the medical professionals aren't asking the right questions to make sure that they are actually really ready for that and okay. So given things like that, the desire of many of the patients to get back home as quickly as possible, and then maybe some of the medical professionals not able to ask the right questions, how successful do you think the U.S. Army's rehabilitation program was? I think it was good, and then it got better. We're all learning as we grow. And so the Army is no different, and the Veterans Affairs and Veterans Administration is no different during this time period. And one good news story that if you want to pull from this is based on the quick desire to get home, starting in Korea and going up all the way through Vietnam and into the process for today, there is mandatory times where things that, such as behavioral health are addressed or ideas of getting reintegrated into society. And just a case in point, would be, you know, coming out of World War II, a lot of your captives were immediately given food by well-meaning, you know, folks, whether it was the soldier who, who actually enters the compound for the first time, giving them rations, or whether it was well-meaning Red Cross volunteers or friends and family meeting them at uh, the port. They would give them the food that is rich, and that was hurting these malnourished uh, former prisoners of war. And we learned from that in World War II to where they started watching that continuing on. And to today, that's a big deal even today, but dealing with um, repatriated prisoners is the idea of watching and protecting their food intake. And then also along with that is looking at the whole person from a behavioral or a mental health aspect. Can you tell us about any of the rehabilitation experience of any particular soldiers who were maybe POWs in the Philippines or the experience of some of the army nurses that you've already mentioned? Yeah, one one comes to mind is a, a nurse. Her name is Minnie Breeze Stubbs, and uh, she actually married a Captain Guy Stubbs that she met in the Philippines. And Minnie was one of the nurses that was repatriated from the Santo Tomas internment camp. And for her particular story, which was, you know, the 66 nurses and the dietitian and the physical therapist, when they left the Philippines, you know, they were given food, but they went to Leyte immediately for 10 days and they received clothes. They got a little bit of their physical needs taken care of, 
It's they're looking at life, land, and eyesight, documenting, giving them physicals. And one of the things that the at least Minnie talks about and her fellow nurses and other captives is there was just a lack of a general lack of understanding as to what they went through. Predominantly the folks that are the care providers, well, they weren't prisoners. And then in society at this time, when you think about Army Nurse Corps officers, they were all female. And even the Japanese didn't know how to handle a female prisoner because in their mind, a soldier can't be a female. A soldier is a male fighting. So that explains why they were actually in an internment camp versus a POW camp. But they were all considered prisoners of war. The deprivations that are taking place in these internment camps, which is where they would put civilians that were in the Philippines, such as State Department personnel or missionaries or school teachers. They were held in that area. So you've got that going against them in the first place is that they're females. And so they don't meet the expectations of what a prisoner of war could be. And there's ramifications about that later on that uh, many talks about and her or fellow captives talk about. So they leave Leyte and they actually get to Hawaii and then there for three days, finishing up with more complete physicals. Uh, they head to Letterman General Hospital in San Francisco. More complete, uh, you know, a battery of tests, physicals. And uh, from there, she's given 30 days of leave and uh, then follow on as needed to military hospitals uh, wherever she travels to next. Some of the nurses stayed on active duty. Some nurses got out along with the majority of the soldiers in the army after the war. Some of them got out and they tried to carry on with the rest of their lives. And in particular, which is an interesting note for many, is that her husband, uh, Guy Stubbs, who she affectionately called Stubby, uh, Stubby was also a prisoner because he was in the Philippines and was taken up to the, you know, through the Bataan Death March. And he actually had to go to Walter Reed in Washington, D.C. because for a year and a half after his repatriation, because he was diagnosed with schistomyosis and basically just Paris parasites that were in his body that were continually causing him sick. And that's one of the stereotypical ailments that you see with uh, prisoners returning is the fact they had parasites in their body. So that's a kind of detailed for many and then kind of off to the side, what her, her husband experienced uh, when he got back is that he had to go to the hospital for a year and a half and the army was trying to heal him from those ailments. Uh, I think later on, what you see with, you know, I'll focus on the, uh, the nurses and the dietitian and the physical therapist that came out of the Philippines was an acknowledgement, first of all, that they were actually were prisoners. And a prisoner of war is authorized lifetime of care in the Veterans Affairs Hospitals, the Veterans Administration. There was actually some pushback when they would seek care, oftentimes, or they would say it's not worth the fight to try to continue on and explain who I am and what I did. Because in their circumstance, coming back to the United States was relatively tough when I read it, in my opinion, and some of them outright said it, because they were paraded through the American public and basically shown as a good news story that our, our heroes are back. And they were on film, interviewed, celebrity galas where they were recognized as heroes. And that was quite wearing on them. They had to have the face of you know, what the press wanted them to be. And several of them actually talked about how when they would say something that the press didn't want to hear, it wasn't recorded. And so they never got that word out. 
So some of their true feelings about what was going on and happening were never reported. And then there was also talk or gossip about what their experiences could have been, outright fabrications often. And that really hurt a lot of these former prisoners of war because they were no longer individuals who needed care and concern, but they became rather a media spectacle and uh, their own story was being dictated by others. And and that's what I see when I read their testimonies, when I read about uh, some of their experiences and just trying to cope with getting back into society. And in that aspect, they, what, would, what would later on be called the angels of Bataan, their experience of just trying to get reintegrated as individuals back into society was quite the challenge for them. And a lot of that was from the behavioral health standpoint, getting ailments initially taken care of, but then the follow-on care was very challenging for many of them. In fact, one of uh, many Stubbs cohorts was a, a lady that uh, became involved as an advisor for the uh, Veterans Administration. And uh, she actually testified in Congress. Uh, her, her name is uh, Mad- Madeline Olam. And uh, she actually served 28 years as an Army, Army Nurse Corps officer. But she actually testified to the U.S. Senate Veterans Affairs Committee and just talking about how it was just so frustrating to get the care that she deserved as a prisoner of war going through that experience of frustration, trying to get the care that she was supposed to get, and then talking in terms of any prisoner should get. But in her individual circumstance, she was the voice of a lot of these folks. And that was in actually a lot later on in years. Uh, 1982 was when she made that testimony. And so that's just a culminating point, I think, of some of their experiences where years later down the road, they are finally given a voice to where they're able to say, hey, look, this is our story. And uh, people are falling through the cracks. I think that the United States has learned from that. Uh, the Army has learned from that. And so my own personal hope is that uh, we continue to be a, a learning organization, that, that we can take those experiences and make things better. And, and I see through studying the Korean War, Vietnam War, changes were made to look at the whole person. Uh, but I think we still have some mistakes that we make today in, in, uh, in our you know, former working with the global war on terrorism. It certainly was a difficult experience for those men and women. And I think it's kind of interesting that there isn't that POW medal until I think the mid-1980s, because I think even before that time, even though these people had gone through just a, a tremendously difficult situation, there was this thought that you couldn't talk about maybe the most difficult parts, or you didn't want to give people recognition or a medal, perhaps, for being a prisoner. But I think you're right. I think there's been a lot of change over the last several decades or so. Going back to the rehabilitation experience, obviously, again, it's very difficult, but it's also during this time period, in the period after liberation, that many of these people need to give evidence for future war crimes trials. How does providing evidence for those war crimes trials fit into the rehabilitation experience? I can speak directly to that about what I know of currently, and it's implied from what I've read and heard interviews from former prisoners of war in World War II. But even in today's uh, process of getting soldiers back from captivity, there's a protected time where there's a balance between taking care of the physical and mental body and then also trying to pull intelligence from the experience. And it would be in that time of immediate uh, repatriation that a lot of prisoners would uh, be interviewed as to what their experience experience was and 
at that time, I think that's when documentation would be pulled for um, potential war crimes and things of that nature. They saw from the European theater that uh, the Americans, for the most part, were treated well. And then the overwhelming evidence of mistreatment from the Pacific theater was documented. But uh, at least from the you know, the angels of Bataan, they don't speak to having to talk about potential war crimes. But in today's environment, there's a very specific process of um, soldiers coming back into society. And there is a particular phase where they gather intelligence, but that is balanced with the care, the care provider because the healthcare provider today uh, is specifically looked at as an advocate for the patient. And so they will intervene when folks that are not concerned about the mental or the physical health of the, the soldier, not that they're being doing something in malice, but that they're to protect them. And we've learned that from our experiences of repatriation of uh, soldiers. Now, you've already touched on this as well, but what would you say is the overall legacy of the U.S. Army's World War II rehabilitation programs? I think the legacy of the programs for rehabilitation and repatriation for prisoners of war in World War II is that now we have seen where the total person is actually rehabilitated. Initially, World War II from the Pacific Theater, it was immediate, hey, let's get them free, let's feed them, let's get them home quickly. And the results of that were the soldier was saying, hey, you know what? I'm glad to be home. I think things are okay. Let me get home. And that's compared to today where there's a specific timeline that the soldier is now protected by a healthcare provider, protecting that behavioral, mental health aspect, as well as the physical aspect. So the total person is is a legacy. The, taking care of the total person is now a legacy of that rehabilitation. And there's that, you know, that space between World War II and today, you know, we had to learn a lot of hard lessons. I know even you could look on YouTube today and you see former prisoners of war coming out of North Korea and they're interviewing them as they come off the plane. And, you know, I think of something like that, of how potentially traumatic that is. These guys have either been in solitude or they have, uh, they're, they're all malnourished. They have diarrhea, dysentery, malaria, and they're being interviewed on the tarmac right after they get off the plane. And I look at that now in modernity, at least, and I think, what were they thinking? Why would they allow something like that? And when you see them interviewed on YouTube, they, they're out there, you can see that these guys are not doing well. So I think that's a, a shame. And we've learned from that. In Vietnam, when, when soldiers and prim primarily aviators that were coming in from North Vietnam, uh, Viet Cong mostly had army, had mostly had army prisoners. But when they're coming back from Vietnam, that idea of immediate life limit eyesight, health care, go back to the United States. In Vietnam and Korea, it was Letterman Hospital in San Francisco. They're getting care and looked at. But in Vietnam, we see actually the idea of focusing in on the mental health of that former prisoner to include the prisoner and their families. So it's a more holistic reintegration. In fact, in today's parlance, it's rehabilitation and um, reintegration primarily. And in Vietnam, we also see that uh, five years after they're repatriated, whether they're in the military or not, they're provided care in military hospitals. And so we have something similar to that today. But then, of course, long-term care for veterans, whether or not you served four years or whether you were 
prisoner of war or retiree, if it's service related, the veterans affairs are the folks that take care of you in the long term. But this idea of the time for reintegration is something that is a, a natural result of trying to take care of the total person, which is the legacy learned from what we saw in World War II. Any final thoughts? In World War II, I think that uh, because the soldiers were so ready to get home, that they often hid their ailments. And of course, if you're trying to get a baseline of a soldier's health and they're hiding it for the purpose of getting home quickly, it's just too fast. And so there's a lack of follow-up that naturally occurs when you don't have a good baseline for the health of a soldier. And then I don't know why, but the data shows that the repatriated prisoners from the Korean War, they actually wanted more time and they were more thorough in their insistence on getting treated and continue on with physical treatment and almost like it was a self-imposed pause in their reintegration, seemingly like that. Whereas the World War II prisoners of war were having to deal with reintegration that was difficult. Uh, the data shows in the Korean War that that reintegration was paused from the patient perspective. There was a they were less than desirable to come into society again. It was tough. And uh, in the Vietnam War, they're institutionalizing that requirement to have time for reintegration. And so we still see that today. Unfortunately, I think that with today's media, we saw evidence early on in the war in Iraq when prisoners were released that uh, it often became a media spectacle. And my personal opinion is that's disadvantageous to the soldier because there's consequences of putting folks in the spotlight when they've been through a traumatic event and they just want to get home and get time to heal. And when you make them a spectacle, I think that does a disservice to the individual soldier. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. I appreciate you highlighting these issues and thanks for what you do telling the story of what our brave men and women did in our past to make us who we are today. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.